0: And good morning for those in America, uh, and good evening, I guess, for, for those with Thomas in Europe uh, and other time zones as well. Welcome to everybody. Good day. Uh, I'm Dave Kellogg. I'm here with my co-host, co-host Thomas Otter. Uh, Hi, everybody. The product, uh, there's Thomas. Hey, and uh, this is the SaaS product power breakfast. The room is being recorded. Our special guest today is Evan Kaplan from Influx Data. Hey, Evan.
1: Hey, Dave, how are you? Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, it's awesome. Great to have you on the show. Um, We're going to talk today about open source. In last week's episode, we talked about open source. Uh, We had a a professor of open source, a friend of Thomas's, from uh, a university in Germany. That was a great conversation. Today, we're going to talk about transitioning from open source, kind of a traditional open source model, to cloud native. So so really, I think the, the vast focus today will be on cloud native. But why don't we start, Evan, do you want to just give a quick elevator pitch background introduce yourself? And then, uh, you know, I got to know Evan through through InfluxDB. We have a common friend um, in one of Evan's board members, uh, Max Searson, uh, who's a EIR at Battery. Uh, so, so Max, I think, had connected us. Um, and I got to meet Evan, and uh, I, I'm very excited about this episode because he's done something that very few people have done. Um, on this transition. But 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 first Evan, how about a quick uh a quick intro, if we could
1: Yeah, sure. Great thing. So um you know I spent most of my career in Seattle and um, I started and started in the early days of P. and I'm amazed how many of you know what TCPappy stands for anymore or even if it exists any, anymore. And, um, and then I started a company out of my house in, in 1996 called Aventail, which was the first SSL VPNs, Layer 5 VPNs, which are now sort of the standard way people do secure communication through SSL and SSH. We sold that company to SonicWall slash Dell in 2007, and then I took some time off and went on to run a public company called iPass around global Wi-Fi, um, and then um, was an EIR at Trinity Ventures where I met Paul Dix um, the, the founder of Influx Data. And, um, and we connected on a personal level and professional level. And, and he asked me to join a CEO. And so um, I made the decision to join an early stage open source startup, which I, I can share with you some of my thinking around that because I think it's relevant. Um, you know, I had, as a public company CEO, I had a number of open source projects with Mongo and with Cloudera, and um, it was clear to me that the future of infrastructure was going to be based on open source foundations. So I had a deep, deep feeling for that. And um, you know, I could see that the people coming out of school, and the people doing early work, and the people doing leadership work, were all starting with open source orientation, open source projects. So I got super excited about it. Um, so I joined Paul, and that was in uh, 2016. And it's been quite a great journey since then. So. Is enough background, Dave?
2: Dave's on mute. <laughs> Got him.
0: <laughs> Sorry, I'm on mute there. Uh, yeah, Evan, uh, we do that to avoid background noise, and sometimes I, I rarely forget to take it off. Um, you should also know that this is applause. <laughs> Get ready. Oh, so oh, if nice. you see me doing nice. that, don't, don't freak out. That's me actually going, yay, I agree with what you're saying. Um, I, I love how people. I'd love, uh-huh. <laughs> I'd love to get that all day long.
1: I'd love to get that all day long.
0: Yeah, the problem is it makes it choppy when you're trying to talk. Um, so, so, look, uh, I think you covered it already, but you were going to talk about the considerations you had in mind in joining an early-stage open-source company. Was that already covered, or was there more to it?
1: No, there's actually, it's a pretty, you know, I think it's a pretty interesting story and reflects the evolution of of what's going on in the open source world. I joined at a really interesting time. While I had, while running a public company, I developed a deep conviction about open source projects. Um, But when I finally joined Influx, I had consulted with them for three or four months beforehand when I was at Trinity as an EIR. Um, When I finally joined them, the kind of headlines that were happening in the world were, were kind of, were a little bit disconcerting. That that the messages that were coming out in the venture capital community were, hey, the only people who've ever made money in open source is Red Hat, which at the time was largely true. Yeah, and 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 the bad news is Mongo had done a down round, Couchbase had done a down round, and um, just a bunch of the sort of the high flyers, Elastic was yet to, yet to show up in a meaningful way, and a lot of the high flyers were were were. Um, were not so high flying. And so when I went out to raise money, um, you know, people weren't interested in my vanity metrics, which were quite compelling. And those of you don't know what vanity metrics are, just simple number of downloads, number of active servers running every day to show how big your community is, that people weren't buying community. Um, and they could see what was already happening with Docker, which had been funded on community and had started to weaken already. And so, it was just a really interesting time. And so, we had to figure out how to monetize the open source. And our decision was a little bit controversial. We decided to monetize on scale out. Influx is a time series platform for handling metrics and events at scale. And so, a single server can handle a couple of million points per second. So, it was very powerful and easy for developers to use. And so we made the decision that we would build a closed source layer to cluster it and scale it out that way. Um, and that's how we monetized. And it was very much a bet-the-company decision because one is if, if customers didn't want to monetize that way or they weren't willing to buy the scale out, we didn't have a monetizable business. And two is if the community totally rejected this notion of closed sourcing the clustering and the, and the scale out, then we – and our community started to decline, then we wouldn't even have the vanity metrics, wouldn't have the growing community. But it turned out to work out. The community continued to grow um, at a very, very fast pace. Today there are half a million sites around the world daily that run influx. Um, and, and we were able to monetize on that. So um, that brings us more to the, to the topic at hand. Any-
0: How about – we do a follow-up question if we can, uh, Evan. How about a quick uh, word from your sponsor? Uh, if, if you want thirty to sixty seconds, if someone's listening, what, what, when should they call Influx? This is your sixty-second free marketing elevator. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was unaware I was going to get that. I would. know. Just, I would have it. So, um, so Influx is oriented towards developers, architects, and CTOs, and so people who are building applications or services based on real-time stuff. So that t- typically is. IoT in the form of sensor analytics. It's custom metrics and monitoring. It's high-frequency trading. Anytime you're building an application where time is the lingua franca of what you're doing, then you know, 20 years ago, you would have built that on Oracle. 10 years ago, you might have built that on MySQL. Seven years ago, you might have tried it with Cassandra. Now, people standardly build it on Influx. And, not, and just to be intellectually honest, not just Influx or other really good time series products out there and the space is considered the fastest-growing space in the database world. We happen to be the leader by a wide margin right now, but you know, I suppose we could screw that up. I hope we don't, um, but we want to face it all humbly. There's your, awesome. there's your 45 seconds, I suspect.
0: Well, well executed, I will say. Um, so, so call Influx if you have those problems. Um, so, Evan, one of the things I like about um, talking to people who've been around for a while in the Valley is they have long memories often, and uh, I had actually forgotten, to be honest, the, uh, the the quote that the only people making money in open source is Red Hat. And that was a very common belief. Um, so, so I think it may be hard for, for somebody relatively new to the Valley to go, wait a minute, there was a time when open source was not cool, and people thought you couldn't monetize open source. So uh, th- first, thank you for reminding me. And, and second... It was a pretty contrarian move, I think, for you to join. I mean, this is going to be a question eventually, but but wow, what a contrarian move because it was definitely not in vogue at the time you joined. And then second, could you elaborate a bit more on the um, scale-out monetization, specifically what, what were you going to charge? It sounds like you were going to use an open core model, if you will, where the, the core time series database would be open source and free, but the clustering and more advanced functionality would be paid. Is, is So a bunch there, respond to any and all of it.
1: Yeah, yeah, that that's correct. So so let's make a scene it was open source was cool, but wasn't cool to venture capital at that moment.
0: Oh, good point. Yes. That
1: changed within a couple of years. But it but it was always cool to the people at you know at the coal face who were building stuff, who were trying stuff, who were downloading stuff. And Paul, my partner and our co founder, had a deep conviction about that and that drove it. And when I joined, you know, let's not attribute my radical, my radical risk-taking to lack of intelligence, which means that I didn't really understand that it wasn't cool in the venture world. I understood that it was, uh, it was only when I started having these conversations that I went, oh, well, that wasn't obvious to me a little while ago. Um, um, but it became obvious quickly. And so, you know, the truth is when we joined, I wasn't planning on trying to find the true monetization model for at least 12, 12 months or longer. You know, we had some capital, and we were going to raise some more. And so, our vanity metrics were outstanding. And so, I was planning on, you know, we would build applications on top of the services. But, but when you realize what was going on in the, the world of funding, it was going to be difficult to do that. And we had already had, you know, twenty-five or thirty people, and we were burning cash. So we needed to, so we needed to figure this out. Um, so so that was sort of that's sort of the backstory. Um, and, and did you imply that I was really old by the start of this question by saying people have been around for a long time?
0: I would never be aged.
1: Just because I knew what TCPIP stands for, doesn't mean I'm that old. (laughs) Transmission
0: control protocol. You you don't know the rest? Is it internet protocol? No. Yes. That's right. Okay. Here we go. Yes. So, um, question for you, uh, well, the thing you reminded me of, frankly, when you were speaking there, Evan, is uh, here, here's another one. Founders used to not be cool. And, and it's a good point. Implied to venture capitalists, right? Like back, back when I ran Mark Logic, if you heard some VCs talking on Sand Hill Road, they'd be talking about, quote, founder issues. And then, in my opinion, with with uh, Andreessen Horowitz really pulled that pendulum the other way and said, no, 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 founders should run their companies And then founders got to be cool and remain cool to VCs uh, in this era. So I think a lot of things people see when they look at the Valley are really just these giant pendulums swinging at low frequency, (laughs) and and they do go back and forth. I don't know if you have thoughts on that. By the way, I'd love your thoughts on being a hired CEO, which is, is, having done it myself at MarkLogic, not the easiest thing to do. Um, At I-Pass, were you hired? I can't remember. I know you founded that Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I-Pass was definitely... So... um, yeah, I have a lot, a bunch of thoughts about that. Founders remain cool. Founders are Link Frank founders are are, you know, are the core of are the are the core of it. And I think, you know, facing up to Paul when we first met, um it's it's um I think it was the fact that I had been a founder and I'd been on a long difficult journey where we were a hot company and then the market crashed in 2000 and then we had to rebuild the company again. I'd been on a long, hard journey, so I could really relate to the founder experience. So I think one of the toughest things to do, and and I think most of the VCs who tune into this kind of stuff would agree with it, is to bring in a CEO with a founder. It takes a fair amount of emotional intelligence on both sides of the equation. And I think one of the things that, 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 that made me join Influx was the fact that I felt like I could do it with Paul, and then there was one other founder there at the time, but I felt like I could do that with Paul, and it's turned out it's worked out, it's worked out really well. Not that it's always been easy, but, you know, our agreement is really simple. He's always treated me like a founder, and I've always treated him like a partner, so it's a very much a peer relationship, um, and we make fun of each other all the time, so...
0: That's awesome. Um, that's great to yeah. hear. I've had the pleasure of watching these guys work together um, uh, one day, and, and I thought it was a very healthy dynamic, and uh, I really love Paul Furnessworth. I thought, uh, w- what a great team you guys make. And by the way, it's also easier to run a company when you have a partner, in my opinion. Have it- <laughs> yeah, I agree. have done it twice. It- it's great if you can have. I mean, that- that's the thing maybe some product founders don't understand is... It- it- the CEO often really, really wants you to stay and be there and fill that role because it's a different role, and boy, it's great to have help.
1: You just need so you know, listen, as you know, the CEO job is, you know, Dave, the CEO job can be pretty lonely, and there are very few people to talk to, and so, you know, at least you've got this other person who's there with you and invested in the same way that you are, and, you know, it's just like you've got the same orientation.
0: Awesome. So, yeah. Okay, so so let's go back. Th- thanks for that. Uh, the digressions are often the most fun part of the podcast. Uh, <laughs> but we will get back to our ostensible subject. Um, so you join this open source company. You're trying to figure out monetization. Open source is not cool to venture capitalists at that time. To your point, it's always been cool. Uh, to, to to open source developers, I mean, you know, now my my age here, Ingress was a, you know, University Ingress is what we call it. It was an open source project originally. Uh, when I first encountered it back in 1983, uh, and Ingress is obviously the parent of Postgres for those in the younger audience <laughs> uh, who probably never heard of Ingress, uh, but who've most certainly heard of Postgres. So, Dave,
2: Dave, pause a moment then yeah, tell, us, the, tell yeah. us that tell us that tell us that that database history. Give us a give us a or you you both Evan Dave. Give us a give us a five minute database. History, you know, ingress and postgress and so on, because these terms are kind of vague. You know, I've got them in my head, but it would be good to good to get the get the chronology. Yeah, it's been a minute yeah, on that.
1: Dave, I'm going to let Dave do that since my background <laughs> before influx was primarily networking and security.
0: Yeah, I'm the database person, I guess. Um, look, th- th- it's very hard to do a brief history of databases. I'll do a, I'll do a really quick one. In the beginning, there was IMS, and it was good. So it was an IBM hierarchical database. It was super rigid, super good at transaction processing. Then IDMS came along, which was a network database, not super dissimilar, in my opinion, from today's graph databases. If you hadn't noticed, Neo4j last week just raised $325 million and around the largest round of the history of databases. Um, and in some ways, I'm sure it's got lots of differences, but, but that graph structure, uh, at least uh, IDMS, I think, was a directed acyclic graph, if I remember, was the, the data model of the database. After that came relational. Uh, the, the original relational database was effectively Oracle. IBM invented SQL. Oracle beat them to market with a product. That was how they got on the map. Ingress was a university project at Berkeley, um, open source. So literally, that's, that's the link to our conversation. It was The first time I heard of open source was Ingress back at Cal. Um, and then eventually, Ingress led to Postgres, which stands for post-Ingress. All of this was led by a guy named Michael Stonebreaker, who has since won a Turing Award as one of the great thinkers in databases. Kind of the, the 1990s clash of the titans was Stonebreaker against Ellison. Ellison was the you know, swashbuckling pirate business person, uh, and Stonebreaker was the would-be Turing Award winner. And, and by the way, that's where I learned that best tech doesn't win, because at Ingress, we had some of the smartest technologists I ever saw, and Oracle had much more aggressive sales and marketing. So... Since then, data, you know, there's been other databases, multi-dimensional databases with Arbor, um, which use hypercubes as the data model. MarkLogic was a document database, as was MongoDB. Um, and, and now, by the way, the first time I heard time series was in 1987, Evan, where people were trying to put yep. time series into <laughs> a relational database, and it was like, oh, it doesn't do this well.
1: <laughs> Informix. Yeah. yeah, yeah, back in Informix days. Yeah, I think it's worth also commenting, Dave, is what what the structural change in the database is at the expense of you know expensive relational. Now, I'd say over the last five years, you've seen these categories break out with very clear leaders. You know, Mongo and DocumentDB and Elastic, maybe Splunk and search databases. You know, Neo4j and Graph us and time series. So you're seeing the componentization of data stores, data models, data query engines. Which I think is making these much more powerful, much more powerful applications that get built. Yeah,
0: this is another one of those pendulums in my mind. For a long time, I thought the most boring job on earth would be database analyst at Gartner, because you literally just had a three-sided die and you could roll it and say DB2, Oracle, or SQL Server. Right, <laughs> that was the answer. Every question had one of three answers, um, and the world wanted. I mean, this is one of my theories Evan. because so First, I agree with your theory in infrastructure that, that open source is the future of infrastructure. I think it's fairly obvious now, less obvious when you made that call. It was getting obvious to me when I left MarkLogic in 2012. So the open source is a huge trend in infrastructure. But I always thought that infrastructure is trending towards monopoly or oligopoly because people like you know, the lack of entropy. They, they like... Uh, what's the right word for lack of entropy? They like order, or they like a small number of choices at the bottom of the stack. So in some sense, the lower in the stack, the more we want standards, and the higher in the stack, we, the less we care. Um, so, But in but, any way, Stonebreaker wrote a paper called One Size Does Not Fit All a long, long time ago, I don't know, a decade plus ago. And uh, that paper basically made the argument for special purpose databases I and have, it, I'd, I'd love it to see right.
1: that, actually. I've not seen that paper, Dave. So if you get a yeah, date, yeah, go, go, go read it. it. it, it he, yeah. was, he
0: called it, you know, as usual, he called it, I don't know, 15 years ago, where he just said Relational had a good run. It's a great general purpose database for general purposes, but there's a new generation of apps coming that manage documents, that manage log files, that manage time series, and, and these are all hard problems not well solved in a, in a uh, general purpose database. So, so I, I view you as part of a very exciting trend uh, that is spe- special purpose databases are now okay. <laughs> and, and for a long time, they weren't.
1: And the workloads, I mean, the, you know, obviously the the, the the exponential growth in data and the workloads are changing and how those workloads are constructed and the ability to use microservices to move stuff across is, is, um, is pretty different than, than what you would have faced 10 years ago.
0: Absolutely. So, so, Evan's running this special purpose database company that focuses on time series that are not well handled in a relational database. Just for any database nerds, I, literally the first time I saw the problem I was like, you need to have one row per data point, <laughs> right? Which would be the correct way to relationally model it, in my opinion. Um, and I'm like, well, that's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely not going to work. Um, so, uh, in, any in any case, case.
1: yep in close in terms of, uh, in terms of, um, in terms of uh, what do you call it, in terms of the letter combination. Special Purpose Acquisition Company and Special Purpose Database Company. It's too close of an idea. Just, uh, <laughs> yeah, was it's a just, not a SPAC. Don't, don't worry. I was yeah. just, it made me, when you said Special Purpose, I was like, oh, my gosh.
0: Oh uh, Yeah, no, that's a whole different. We have to do an episode on SPACs, uh, Thomas. Uh, so anyway, yeah, so do. I've been running this company. He's joined the company, and he's thinking about monetizing open source, which is kind of a classical way to do it. I call it an open core model, Evan. I don't know if you agree with that or not, where part of the product is pure open, and then part of it is proprietary. Um, And and, and then the cloud is happening. And so so how did you go, oh, gosh, we need to go cloud native? Like, when did you figure that out? Why? And, And I'd love to hear that part of the story.
1: Well, let's take, an, let's take one little interim stop before we get to that part of the story. Is sure, And the interim stop would be around licensing and open source. And so you're right. We didn't want to be open core, but at the time we felt like it was the only choice to fund the company is to do it and that sort of stuff. In the, in the ideal world, we would have um, open sourced all of that clustering and scale out right away and built on that later. That was the original plan. And so, um, you know, we would have put the distributed capability in the open source and grown the community and then monetized um, in ways higher in the stack or in a cloud model. But, But because of the situation at the time and funding, we decided to do it this way. I think what's happening in this world, and you could do a whole other show on it, is we think it's pretty confusing, is the whole licensing stuff. And so we've taken the approach that we license our stuff permissively, all of it. Um, and so we've got a new project, a new storage engine called Iox, and things like that. We have um, our core InfluxDB, and so what we want to say is, whatever's closed is closed, and whatever is open is truly open and permissive. We think what's happening out there with the different licenses, and you're familiar with some of this GPL v3, and and some of these secondary, you know, these secondary licenses where it's confusing about what's what. We think that's going to be a problem in the open source world. It's to protect people's intellectual assets from Amazon and others. And I think that's truly valid. But I think it's pretty confusing for users how the licensing. And so you guys could do a whole separate show. We, but, but in regards to the open core decision, we've decided that what's open source is open source and fully permissively licensed. And what is closed source is closed source. And to draw a pretty clean line there. And we don't so, think a lot of companies are doing that.
0: So to... to Confirm. I understand what you said. You're not um, following MongoDB with the SSPL license. Um, no. no. So not a, not. the other way to say it yeah. is, Amazon could take your open, your pure open source part, and run it as a cloud service. Is that, is that correct?
1: That is correct. That wow, is. that's
0: a big decision. Was that?
1: It was a tough decision. Paul and I, Paul and I, and the rest of the team went around and around on it. We thought about it. We thought about it. And we think it's more important that you have a project that has velocity than a project that it, that is protected. And if it comes to the day when Amazon takes your stuff and competes with you um, and can beat you at it, right, then, then you have other issues as a company. Now, that's not perfectly true. I recognize that they've got, you know, Amazon or anybody else has tremendous advantages and they sell infrastructure and send, they don't have to really charge very much for your stuff. So there are some structural advantages. But we felt the the possibility to build real community around this stuff and contributors and source that was unfettered is actually really important. And Paul was a really strong advocate for that. If you look on our site, he's done some writing about it. And, that, and to me, I just like the clean lines between open source and closed source.
0: Yeah, uh, this is an aside, but I've worked with a couple of open source companies over the years, and I can find open source founders almost bordering on religion in their views. <laughs> so it can make those conversations very difficult because they're like, no, that's not the spirit of open source. This is a bright line. Like, I called SSPL open source last week, and our, our, our commenter was like, no, that's a closed source license. Uh, our, our guest, you know, was like, whoa, I, th- I thought it was
1: a... Yeah, it was, that's a great, uh, and I think Paul feels that way a lot, a lot of the time. But the relationship we have is we can hold ideas together and with, with other members of the team, and we can hold them in ambiguity for a little bit. And then make the decision, and so he's not so orthodox. I mean, he has conviction, strong conviction, but not orthodox. Awesome, Um, but it's worked. I think it's worked for us pretty well. Um, Yeah. Cool. So,
0: um, so, so you've let, let me try and get the narrative. And by the way, just as a quick aside, notice the importance of the availability of fundraising driving some of their strategic decisions. Um, I think sometimes people underestimate that, <laughs> and, and well, you know, without money, you can't do anything. So, uh, well, slightly overstated, but but it takes money to do a lot. Yep.
1: Don't get me wrong; gives me tremendous admiration for the bootstrappers, for the people who've managed to do things right in the in their worlds without. But you know, we we were already cast on a journey where venture was going to be our our route, and so um, so we had committed to building a thing that was going to take a fair amount of time as opposed to incrementing it, and so we're down that path. But I give a lot of credit to the people, a lot of credit to the people who bootstrap these businesses.
0: Absolutely, as do I. The the point I was trying to make inarticulately was once you get that fork in the road and you choose to go the venture side rather than the bootstrap side, you need to accept the fact that you need to build something attractive to venture capitalists if you want to raise right. money. Right? There's um, no going back. There's yeah, no, no going, going back. back. <laughs> <laughs> and I think sometimes people kind of forget that. So it was great to see the, the your pragmatism, saying, "Look, we need to make this decision in accordance with what will help us raise money, as well as you know, that's, that's another constraint on the equation, uh, if you will." So so okay so so you've uh, I think I lost the thread here so you join this company at a time when open source is not cool for VCs you focus on monetization you pick an open corp model you then have a big licensing decision to make which is do we do we stay kind of pure open source for lack of a better term or or do we try and do some sort of SSPL like model that protects us from hyperscalers and you guys say no we're we're going to go pure open source so you make that decision and then when does cloud-native come along? At what point are you so, like, we need to be cloud-native? Yeah.
1: Yeah, so we had to remake that decision, but I'll come to that in a second. So okay. I'd say about three years ago, it became clear to us that state-of-the-art for um, for open-source companies to monetize was not going to be around open core per se, but was going to be around cloud and cloud-native orientation. And not everything should be in the cloud. There's edge stuff. There's other pieces. But let's just, for the sake of a, of a summary level, that we thought that was going to be the best way to monetize, and that we started that effort about three years ago, and um, and you know, listen, it's it's you you've been around the business for a long time, Dave. Is you know, software re-architecting software has tremendous promises and will always be better and be a hundred percent and all that sort of stuff. It won't take that long. And all of those things are untrue. It takes a long time. It duplicates some of the issues you had before, but it generally gets you in a better place, but is expensive. I heard, um, recently heard, I heard, I think his name is Scott Farquhar, one of the CEOs of, of Atlassian, said the hardest thing he's ever done, I don't want to misquote him, it was in a, it was in a um, it's kind of a seminar thing, where he said the hardest thing we ever did was take Atlassian Enterprise and make it multi-tenant cloud. <laughs> And um, I would say technically it was really, really hard journey because you're taking a piece of monolithic software, you're breaking it up into, um, into microservices, you're scaling each one of them elastically, then you add multi-cloud, then you add all the billing engines around it, then you add, you know, the... Not that you're ever through, but... And then you lay behind that, which I think a lot of people don't understand, is you're changing the fundamental way you build software. You go from a, you know your classic Agile Scrum model to a CI/CD build, in which you're promoting things to production on a you know on a daily basis, as opposed to once a quarter or once a month or however, however often you're doing your sprints and loading into production. And that is a fundamental change. So it was a it was a. Cataclysmic change for the business, fundamentally, so you, in the way we do work.
0: So, as you sat at that fork in the road, did you look at intermediate paths? Because on the <laughs> one hand there's stay on-prem <laughs> and, and the other hand is true cloud native. Um, what were some of the intermediate paths you looked at and, and how hard of, you're laughing so I'm pretty sure you did. Uh, how hard a conversation was that and what were some of the alternative paths you considered? And, and by the way, who argued for them on what basis? Because th- this decision, I know some people in the, who listen to this are going to be at this crossroads, and I'd love to just focus on what it feels like and what what the arguments were made and how you came to the conclusion you did. So
1: um so so I I probably didn't tell the whole story, probably a third of our revenue at that time was cloud, but it was a managed service cloud. So and still and still that's still a big part of our revenue is we run we run that service on dedicated servers for customers. You hosted know, we service. do that for a that? yeah, we do that for Salesforce, we do that for Google, we do that, yeah. So we had a hosted service model. And 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 that was working fine and it was growing and all that sort of stuff. But here's the here's the real fundamental problem with a hosted service model and open source. So the traditional open source journey is I download your software, whatever. It could be us, it could be Neil 4 j it could be Mongo. And I build something of import with it or on it, right? And then I raise my hand and say, I want to buy the enterprise version of the scale out. And at that point, you can either say, we can run that for you in a managed service or we can... Um, or, or, or you can run it yourself, right? You can buy a subscription, a license. That's the traditional commercial model. That's the traditional journey. Start with the open source, download it, build something, right? And what I wanted to do, what 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 we had the vision to do what was exciting for me. Was how how do I give? How do I allow them to duplicate the open source experience, but do it in the cloud? Right. And so the idea being is you don't have to download it. You can just point your data at it and you can use it. And how do I build a free forever tier? Right. Which is the objective we're trying to do and which is go build it, go play with it, go do stuff. We'll put some limits on it. You'll go through a paywall. Right. But it's free forever. You can stay there. You can do it. It was very much like, a, you know, a number of the other people who started in the cloud and that basically a free forever model, which is what I want. So the people could build in the open source so I could create an alternative journey. Right, And I couldn't do that on a managed service model because I have to spin up instances. I could run trials for 15 days. I could do stuff like that. But we wanted app developers to build stuff of import. And so in order to do that, we had to give them a free tier, and then they walk through a paywall when they eventually get to the point where they start to scale their app. And that allows us to people to start. I couldn't have done that with just the managed service. So looking backwards, 2020 hindsight, you know, perhaps there were interim steps that I could have taken to go partly there and partly there and partly there as opposed to rip a Band-Aid off and go full-time there. Um, but, you know, now that we're there, um, I feel very lucky to have a, a truly cloud, multi-cloud, cloud-native product and have a, an enterprise edge product at the same time. <laughs> And last quarter, they announced that 51% of their revenue came from Atlas, which was a $3 million business, if I'm correct, at the time they went IPO in 17. And so this this is, we think, state of the art of where open source companies need to be, how to monetize.
0: So two quick questions. On the hosted service, the, what I thought you were going to say was it didn't scale. Instead, instead, what you said was it didn't allow us to replicate the open source experience in the cloud, which I think was super interesting. Uh, is there a scalability issue as well, or is that just sure. go without saying? Okay, yeah.
1: You know, I mean, you probably could get there with pouring more money, but on an individual basis, it wasn't tremendous, it isn't tremendously profitable. It's fine, but it doesn't get to where you want to go to be an elite company. Um, in terms of performance.
0: So so your first principle then driving forward was this preserve the open source experience, which I I thought was super interesting. The the question is, if just for a minute, stepping out of Influx for a second, if if you were running an on-premises company, what would that fork feel like? Would you do anything differently, or what would your first principle be? Just say you weren't an open source company. Say, say, I, I keep saying on prem versus open source. And say 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 it was proprietary, closed source company. Um, what would you? How would you think about that fork?
1: Yeah, I might I might have taken an interim step. I might have taken the step that we have. I would have tried the managed service first. I, I think it would have delayed the inevitable. Um, but but I think I would have tried it first. And see it if I could engineer. And I think you can probably these these days. There's a lot more tools to engineer the cost out of that managed service thing. I just think the customer experience is better if it's you know, you know. We modeled it on, on thinking about companies like Twilio or, you know, or Segment or people like that. Is API driven companies right? Is how do you, you know, how do you um, how do you allow people to just work directly with with with, with the platform itself? as opposed to having to install a bunch of stuff or manage stuff or even having somebody else manage it for you. And also, you, the scaling is not, you know, it's in, when, you do it, when you do it as a managed service, the scaling is discontinuous. So you go through levels of I, this never server, this, this, this. You know, you're moving up and down the, the kind of discontinuity. You know, the scaling can be way continuous in this consumption model. And, and I think key here is consumption. So that uh, model...
0: Got it. We're going to come back to that one second. Just as I'm always trying to extract lessons along the journey, because um, we, we skipped to uh, uh, managed service as step one. What was that transition like? I mean, some people haven't done that yet. Uh, any tips or pointers for going from you know, just selling software, if you will, to, to running a managed service?
1: I'd say we had that very early. So okay. almost I think it was already running by the time I got there at a very low level. there wasn't any revenue, meaningful revenue on it, but it was already running at a low level. so hosting it was not that hard okay um, you know there's some simple we um, yeah, it wasn't that hard.
0: I mean, you have to build an ops team. And you have to get used to delivering on SLAs and and running software. I mean, for whatever it's worth, I, I think it is something of a transition for a company that used to just ship software. But 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 it sounds like it I really think for most
1: be. people it was, but we yeah. just started it at the same time, so it was yeah. like there was no ops team. There was one person, you know. It was kind of like that.
0: Oh, really? You did run yeah. it with one person, huh? Um, Okay, so so let's go back. So so can you define some terms for us? You talk about cloud native. You talk about true cloud native. You talk about multi cloud. I uh, can't remember some of the terms you've used. Um, could you give us your kind of just quick definitions of these terms, and then talk to us about the decisions you made after that?
1: Yeah, you know, it's a good strategy as a as an interviewer, Dave. Is just you know you can shoot holes in anybody when you ask them to define their terms. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think, I think we know what man, the managed service model is, which is hosted, which is, you know, we spin up individual servers. We view cloud native as, you know, it can be closely tied to Kubernetes. It doesn't have to be Kubernetes. It's built on microservices. It's elastic. It's serverless. And it's consumption oriented. It's reads, writes, queries, that sort of stuff. Very much like you'd see with a query or an Amazon Dynamo or one of the existing larger cloud databases. Even, you know, Snowflake or Databricks, too, you'd argue.
0: And does it, I mean, this, it does not imply that, that your cloud service needs to rely on other cloud services underneath it, correct?
1: It doesn't, it doesn't. But when you say yeah. multi-cloud, now, now people are saying, okay. So cloud native is, it, you could run in your own data center, but it's, it's, you know, it's a consumption-based model, elastic serverless. And when I say multi-cloud, I'm thinking, you know, at least my definition of it is we are running on, for us, Azure, Google, and, um, um, and who's that third company? Oh, Amazon, yeah. And um, um, and uh, so that people can run it and use their credits where they want to and be in the as opposed to in some place we dictate for them. So
0: And do people ask you and this is gonna be a naive question, I apologize, but but even say I'm an AWS customer, there's a difference between just kind of renting servers and storage and running it on AWS, quote unquote, and then using some of AWS's underlying services. Is that are they asking you for the latter? What are they actually asking you for when customers say, hey, Evan, I'm a big Amazon customer. I want to use and burn my AWS credits with you. Does it change how you have to build your software, basically?
1: Uh, no, you just have to integrate with their billing engines, so, Got it. So, Got it. so, which is some work, right? You have to integrate their billing engines so they can use their Amazon credits. It it's becomes a payment issue, and, um, you know, and you show up in the Amazon marketplace. And that's interesting in and of itself in that Amazon built a competitor to Influx. And rolled it out last year, and so, yeah, and so, which is the classic model. Um, Got
0: it. So, as you, what did you have to change? So let's go back to that fork in the road. So you're saying, hey, we already had a managed service. We had to make this big licensing decision. Uh, We made that, and now we're on the journey to true cloud native. How long has that taken? And what had to change? What were kind of, you know, three to five biggest things? You One of my theories is, this is what I used to say to on-prem companies in SaaS, which is if you want to go SaaS, it's a top three strategic objective for three to five years. And I felt the same way about consumption pricing. If you want to go from annual subscription to consumption, it's a top company priority for three to five years, right? I'm pretty sure if you want to go to true cloud native, it's a top three company priority for three to five years, is my guess. Um, I'd love to see if you agree with that in terms of how to frame it, and then what were some of the sub-priorities.
1: Um, so I, I I agree I totally agree with your assessment I think that's well said I would argue it's a top one and has to be top one like it's <laughs> it's too, so start so so we frame this as two broad challenges both of which in my classic entrepreneurial sense I probably underestimated right um, which is one of the great things about sort of having an entrepreneur mindset is you're willing to tackle big challenges but you know but you're naive about them some some and so on the technical side... Totally agree, um, by
0: the way. hate to interrupt, uh, but I couldn't have said it better myself. That That is the <laughs> essence of the entrepreneurial spirit, is you're biting off way more than you can chew without knowing it.
1: <laughs> without knowing it. without yeah. knowing, it. And with the confidence that you do know it, which is ironic. Yeah. But, but, uh, sort of
0: a willful ignorance. But, but it makes so it all I'd, possible, because if, if you knew, you wouldn't do it.
1: So i break it up into two broad challenges. One is on the technical side. And so if you describe the technical challenges, there's a sheer... You shared, you know, as I said earlier, decomposing the monolith and rebuilding it. That's just technically hard. Two is then the systems that you do to deliver enterprise or even managed service software are fundamentally different. So you have to change the engineering culture, right? You have to go move into the CICD environment. You change the tool set, the tool chain, all parts of it. There's so much change associated with building this way. Um, that, that it's very different than shipping open source into, you know, to GitHub. It's very different. Um, and so those are the two big changes, the pure architectural challenges of doing this elastic kind of serverless thing, and then the, the, the cultural differences of changing how you build software. And then I think what, what it puts an onus on product development that doesn't exist in the enterprise world, which is you're supporting your code 7 by 24, in truth, in the enterprise world, you are, but you don't feel it in the way you feel. you feel it when you're running a service like this. So if you worked on some code and it's not working, you're on call, right? And a lot of developers don't want to work in that environment. Um, but that's where most of software is going these days, so it's interesting. So that would be the technical side. On the non-technical side, when you move to a consumption-based model, it changes everything. It changes so many things that I underestimated about the business. It's If you're an enterprise sales guy and you're used to doing a couple of hundred K, you know, your deals being average deal size, a couple of hundred thousand dollars. And all of a sudden you're nurturing somebody who's, who's building an app, who's doing, you know, who's doing a thousand dollars a month. You can be like, this is confusing to me. What's my role as a salesperson. Right. And then all of a sudden your metrics your, your underlying data analytics on the business start being really important. Your pipelines and your PQL and everything about the business changes when you're consumption-based model. And so if you go back to those two journeys in the open source model, you can't see when somebody's building something on you. You can't see anything that's going on. But in the cloud native model, you can start to see because they start consuming. And so you can get in there and you can help them and you can coach them. So you have to build tools and services to see that. And then do that and help them along the journey, and you have to build a different kind of sales model in which you're now converting from a consumption to an annual, right? And you and and you also have to handle the people who are who are doing, you know, across the top, born in the cloud stuff, where they can't do a credit card swipe in a consumption model. They have to come across and and because of the way their purchasing works and come in an enterprise model. So now you have three different models. And you have to think about how you face up your sales force, your support, your coaching around it. And that's been its own journey, of which I think we're 85% of the way there, but learning all the time. We live on analytics now. We didn't have to live on analytics in the managed service world and even the the software delivery in the uh, subscription model in the way we do now.
0: So how did Um, it change the role of the salesperson? I'd love to drill into that uh, a teeny bit more. Like, did you have to fire some salespeople and hire a different style of salespeople? And and by the way, for what it's worth, what's the role? Do you have customer success and what's its role relative to sales?
1: Yeah, so so we're still learning. And no, we didn't have to fire people because of that. Um, no. So I think we made the mistake as we introduced this to our sales force early. And I don't think they got how they could sell it. And, and, um, and it wasn't obvious about how you do it. I think you know you have to change comp plans to reflect growth. You have to change um, um, good enterprise people start selling it um, directly, and we're starting to see a lot more of that. Where where you're going to a large customer who who started building something, and then you're you're able to help them by giving them a POC, where you give them some credits to go build it, as opposed to do a credit card swipe. There's a bunch of motions there. It's it's probably its own podcast. It's a bunch of notions, but it, you have to be. It's tricky. If you've got if you've got a person who's got a one point three one point four million dollar um, ARR quota, um, ACV quota, and you're trying to get that in a consumption model, it just does, doesn't work easily that way. Just really tricky.
0: So uh, so look, knowing enterprise software people, you know, and having worked at Salesforce where they started out with monthly billing and monthly invoicing, pay as you go. Right. And when I was there in 2012, so 13 years later, we did an eight year deal. <laughs> right. So people, wow. people just love to stuff customers full of software, uh, whether it be a big on prem license or, or whether it be even SaaS subscription. Right. Um, is that what also happens when you're in a consumption world? Do they just try and ram credits down people's throats? And are we recreating the sins of the past in a different model? Or, or how, how do you manage that? What does the deal actually look like? Am I, am I buying credits? And, mm-hmm. and what's the prevent salespeople from just stuffing me full of five years' worth of credits.
1: Yeah, it's great. So, you know, there's always, uh, you know, wherever there's a situation, there's a, t- you know, situation like that, there's a tendency to, you know, to want to inflate whatever it is. Yep. But I think the consumption model mitigates it quite a bit because, you if you're paying sales guys, if they down, if they come down, if you're paying them on these MRR kinds of numbers as opposed to the ACV numbers, if they come down around the other stuff, you start losing money or decrement. Different people approach the comp in different ways. And so there's, there's always that incentive, but there's way less of it in this consumption-based model. And customers are more tuned to their usage and what's going on, right? As opposed to I bought four servers because I thought I think I'll need that much. They use it as they go. So, yes, there's a little bit of excess. You know, you can see that with Amazon Reserve instances where you're making bets on the future, but they're way more informed bets from the customer point of view than they would have been in the software model. And what's, a, you know, what's the traditional metric I think that Gartner used is 50% of the software that's ever bought never gets off the shelf, at least in the software world. I don't think that's true in the consumption world.
0: Got it. Um, uh, let me do a quick room reset here. You're listening to the SaaS Product Power Breakfast, uh, hosted by Dave Kellogg and Thomas Otter. Uh, we're interviewing Evan Kaplan, uh, CEO of Influx Data. Uh, we're talking about the transition from traditional open-source models to cloud-native. Uh, the room is being recorded. Thomas, you've been relatively quiet. Do you want to weigh in? Oh, by the way, audience questions are accepted as well. So so first, if you're in the audience and have a question, please raise your hand, and second, over to Thomas.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, your head of product... You know how does yep. his job or her job differ from the equivalent head of product at, say it's say oracle you know what what's the difference in their day how do they think <laughs> uh, how, how do they everything. think how do they think differently <laughs> about you know about um you know everything from from engineering capacity to to go to market to partnering you know how, how does it you know how does it how would it be fundamental because i'm a I'm an applications guy so as far as I'm concerned you know um databases are like electricity you know they need to do they need to do what they say they're supposed to do and they need to do it they need to do it reliably but I'm not you know I'm not particularly interested as an application guy in in one brand of database over another unless there's some some specific functional uh, capability that that database brings but obviously I'm an application guy rather than a, a, a database guy but somebody who's a who's a database product manager who's been you know, working in in a, in a in a a proprietary database world what's 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 different from a specifically from a product management perspective?
1: Let, let me offer you the opportunity to have Tim Hall on your on your uh, on your show eventually because he could he could probably write a book about it um, and um, so um, Tim actually ironically because you framed the question that way at one point in his career was at Oracle where he was you know VP of products for um, for their middleware products. So, and then he was at HortonWorks, where he ran product there. And so, so he had a lot of experience delivering kind of enterprise open source, op, enterprise products, and then enterprise open source products. I would just say that we went on this journey together. And and by the way, since we do have an edge enterprise product, that's that's a big part of our business, an important part um, that that he has to manage both today. I would just say it's a tremendous learning. His job has changed dramatically. How you spec stuff goes in, you're not. He's not running off of the normal agile scrum process. We still do sprints and that sort of stuff, but they get delivered differently. And and the kind of you know there are parts of the product that never would have shown up you know in 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 the world of in the world of enterprise. You know the e-commerce engine, the billing engine, the whole growth hacking piece is very different. In which you know you're trying to watch each person's journey as they build it. And you're trying to help them along. You're communicating with it. There's just so many aspects of product that are different in this mm-hmm. world when you build it in this cloud-native fashion. And that's true for SaaS, not just consumption model, but any even seat SaaS, you want that same thing. And so you just, you really have to, you know, we could hire people who just, mm-hmm. we could hire somebody who had just done all that, but then they wouldn't have an appreciation for this journey piece where you have to manage both of them. And, and your so,
2: engineering your engineering contribution, is it, is it, only your engineers, or or are there you know are there volunteer external uh, contributors to your engineering to your engineering core?
1: So we have a fair amount of open source contributors, um, but we control the actual build. So so we take those contributions as they right. come so, in. So how would you do that in a in a
2: CI CD model? You know,
1: um, so we don't. We don't. Those are contributions to the open source. Um, where appropriate, we take them into the cloud product.
2: Okay, the so the cloud you, so product
1: is a superset of the open source. I see. By okay. nature it moves way faster. Okay. It moves it'll move faster, the cloud first, it'll it'll, you know, generally have more capabilities because we can introduce them. Right, but the cloud call, the, the, test- so the so
2: the, the, the um uh the cloud first component the cloud native component is 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 managed in essence in the same way as you would manage uh uh a uh, proprietary uh proprietary product in terms of resourcing, right? So you're resourcing with your with your own engineering capacity for the cloud product, rather than trying to uh, as a product manager manage um, uh, external contributors external external contributors contributing to that to that native product.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's largely true. But even the external contributors, you just you're just using the source that comes in and you're examining it and validating it and decide to put it in a build or not. So it's not really integral. To your normal build cycle, right? You're taking them as as it comes. Okay. So you'll do. You could do the same with the cloud stuff. Is where there's an open source contribution that should be in the broader in the broader place. Um, you put it in. Right, but but the,
2: sorry, but so many questions. But the, the 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 product manager then is how much time are they spending engaging with that with that contributing? I sort of split the community into two. There's a contributing. There's a consuming community. You know, and there's a contributing community. You know, they sometimes they overlap, obviously. But the the you know, how much time would it would the would the head of product spend? You know, with that contributing community, you know, um, uh, motivating them and working with them and so on. Is is that a big part of their job?
1: Um, no, we have a developer relations team that works that that does a lot of that work. And so the, the in the product management function, you're largely looking at the contributions that are coming in. Hey. And they're generally and they're generally not contributions to the core core database. They're contributions to our collection engines, our visualization engines, our test, things like that. Cool. Okay. And I think we, we, we a have a question,
0: right? We have yeah, a question. We do indeed. Cool. Yes, Thomas. Thanks for noticing. Yes, we have two questions. In fact, uh, my friend Raj is up here. Raj Ghasin. Uh We'd love to hear from you. Uh, thanks for muting while you were waiting. And uh, what, what what would you like to bring us, Raj?
2: Uh, great. Thanks, Dave. And Evan, thanks for uh, the talk today. It's been super helpful. Uh, wh- question for you. Um, you mentioned when you joined, you you uh, you know you kind of inherited a managed service. Did you burn the boats on that business or did you run that in parallel while you were doing the cloud native offering? And you mentioned Mongo and Atlas as a maybe an example. So I'm kind of curious your approach versus uh, what they did because they have obviously run that, you know, the on-prem, quote unquote, business in parallel. So I'd love to get your take on that.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. No, if we didn't burn the boats. I mean, one of the things you realize when you're dealing with, with enterprises or people who built on, you don't get to burn boats, right? You support customers where they are, and when it's their time to move, they move. Um, and so, no, we continue to run that cloud, that cloud service and have very large customers on it, and we, we suspect that eventually they'll all move to this, to this consumption-based cloud, and we're making that, and, and they're starting to do that now, but we're not going to force people unnaturally. You have to keep it going. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, it's just, you know, what is it? The classic the classic phrase is, you know, that God built the world in seven days because he didn't have an installed base. We have an installed base that we have to treat with care.
0: Hey, I'm trying to bring Sean up on stage. He had a question. <clears throat> I don't see him up yet, so, oh, there he is. Oh, hey, Sean. Hello? Yeah. Hey, Dave. Can you hear me? Yeah, you got a lot of background noise, so if possible, try and reduce it and and also ask a short question just because of the noise. Great to have you.
2: Sorry about that. Uh, I'll ask it quickly. Um, uh, One, well, here's my short one. Uh, How long did it take for your new consumption-based model to overtake your uh, previous managed service model?
1: We're still in that model. It hasn't overtaken it yet. It'll take a few years. It'll take a few years just because it's normal growth. Got it. It's really only been, only been... It's only been six months as an active product, maybe nine months as a truly active product.
2: Ah, got it, got it. And then one uh, higher level question is, um, you know, uh, when you came in, you already had a big open source community. Uh, With the way that fundraising and open source in the SaaS world has changed, uh, how would you view, you know, starting from a new project that's closed source and making decisions around open sourcing and building that kind of community?
1: I think... That's a really good question, Sean. Thanks. Um, I, I always think it's. I, th- I always think it's hard, and, and maybe I'm not the expert. Paul would be a good, good, also a good guest on the show. Um, is that I think it's very hard for somebody who starts with a closed source mindset to decide I'm going to open source this thing and then go. I think you have to. St- I think the most likely to success is you start with a project that you're committed to open source. You know you're going to build a community. You, I advise some companies now that, that, are, that are doing that, and so you work from that perspective. Um, I think it's very difficult to say I'm building a product and then I'm going to open source a portion of it or this, or open source is going to be my business model. I think Paul would say is you build it out in the open, you let people watch it, Influx's success was that was people could watch, they could join the community, they could contribute. They built it out in the open, um, and and it was you know and it was super easy to use and it empowered developers to build stuff quickly. That was a point of view Paul had early on when he decided to build the open source project called Influx. I think it would I think it's always hard, and I'm not aware, not to mention does exist of success stories where people did the inverse. They started with a closed source and said, let me open source a part of this to be successful.
0: Doesn't mean awesome
1: I just can't remember.
0: <clears throat> awesome. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining. And I, I like your two-moon shirt, uh, Sean. I'm pretty sure that's uh, the California Avenue pizza place. <laughs> it <is too. laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: it is. I, I raise bikes for them, but, yeah. Awesome. Oh, that's that's awesome. I was going to say, I like your bike hat. Very safe. <laughs> Fantastic. Keeps them
0: safe on the uh, clubhouse room here. No, no head injuries in the uh, power breakfast. Um, well, thanks for coming up, Sean. Thanks, Raj, for your questions. Uh, Evan, we got about three minutes left. Cl- I, I can ask you another question, or you can give us some wrap-up comments. Do you have any, anything you wanted to say
1: but we didn't yeah, ask? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give a couple of wrap-up, pres- yeah. a couple of wrap-up comments. Um, listen, I'm super proud of what we've been able to do and what the team has been able to do over the last three years. Um, I will reinforce the fact that we're, we were naive about it, it's allowed us to go at it so hard and to eventually get there. I think it's a non-trivial intervention. And I would, I would weigh back on what you said, Dave. It's the top priority for three to five years. Um, and, um, and you have to believe that that's the future of your business. And, and, and that's the future. We happen to believe that this is state-of-the-art for open source. If you're an open source company and you're not getting to a consumption based cloud native model, then you're not properly monetizing. You're not long term properly monetizing your open source intellectual property. That's our that's that's the view, it's that's the orthodox view we've developed. Um, you know, we're doing pretty well, but you know, time will tell.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Thomas, did you have a final question or some wrap up thoughts as well?
2: No, I just learned a bucket load today. Um Realizing how little I actually know about open source. So, getting a whole, getting a, getting, I got school today, which is really, really, which is really cool. Evan, you, you explain things very, very well. Super patient and, and super clarity. So, really, this was really useful for me. I learned a lot. So, thanks very much for coming on the show. Yeah. I thought okay.
0: this was a great pairing with the prior session, Thomas, which is we have kind of a, a more academic, uh, you know, view of open source, kind of an open source primer in, in the last episode, really, right? Like fundamentals of open source, licensing models, and, and uh, kind of talking to an open source expert. And now we got kind of the CEO perspective. Like yeah, but it was so money. interesting how they
2: how they were actually very similar. The, the 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 positions I think of both of both Dirk Dirk and Evan were were very very um, you know very very similar. So it was it was kind of fascinating to see that, uh, that that congruence and overlap. Agree, agree. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, No, no, I don't think there was a huge contrast, but it was, uh, I think, it's just, look, as, as a former CEO, I, I love hearing the CEO perspective, like, how do you make money on doing this stuff? How do you lead an organization to drive this change? Because uh, this stuff is really hard uh, and has ever been reinforced. It has to be a top priority. And it's, it can also be religious, right? It, these are difficult. I mean, it's not just understanding license models and monetization models, but leading an organization through that change is, is super hard. Uh, and it sounds like Evan has done a great job at that. So, um, look, uh, I think we're going to wrap it up. Uh, this has been the SaaS Product Power Breakfast. Evan Kaplan has been our guest. Evan, thanks so much for being with us today. Any, any final thoughts from you?
1: No, just thanks. Thanks, you guys. It's a really, it's a real pleasure, Dave. Your deep insight into into um, you know how how data works, how these business models have been the CEO seed, and Thomas, your orientation around SaaS in general, just make it a really informed discussion. The one thing I would say is, at some point in the future, if you wanted to really deeply understand the, the thinking behind the open source, I find Paul has been Paul has shaped a lot of my opinions, and so about you know all of the stuff around licensing and community and open source. So um, yeah, you could just explore that with him. We will, I'll we will.
2: We will look to get him on the show. Excellent. Yeah,
0: we'll add Paul to the list for sure. Hey, thanks a lot, guys. Um, this has been a great session. I'm going to spin down the room in 10 seconds. Hang on a moment. So, we need uh, the
2: applause first.
0: All right. Oh, sorry. Yes. <laughs> Technology at work. Hey, Evan, thanks again. It's been a really That's awesome, you guys.
1: You. Really fun. Thank you.
0: Take care. Spinning.